At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, I want to welcome Joshua Kutchin. He is a researcher and author of three books. First, A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch. Then, A Brimstone Deceit, An In-Depth Examination of Supernatural Scents, Otherworldly Odors, and Monstrous Miasmas. And finally, Thieves in the Night, A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions. Joshua, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Absolute pleasure. Doing great. Um, recovering from a little bit of the, you know, the man flu, but <laughs> otherwise doing pretty good. Doing pretty Very good. good. Happy to be here. Very happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. Welcome. And your work is fascinating. Um, this, the stories of people and children being abducted by supernatural or otherworldly entities is a theme that, of course, goes back centuries. And today, the phenomenon still occurs, and there's still no good explanation for it. But you never really hear about fairy lore uh, in this research. And it contains many of the same themes that you know modern-day abductions contain. Um, and like I said, you, your research is fascinating. I'd like to start with what got you started with it. Um, well, I was always sort of a monster kid, you know, I, I always loved, you know, I think <laughs> I just remember this because I'm getting ready to move here at the end of the week. And, uh, I, I packed up my framed poster of the original King Kong, the 1933 King Kong. And that was my, that was like the first film that I, I, I remember seeing like my first, you know, the first I said, Dysoy, you know, I said dinosaur. So I was always a monster kid from the very beginning. I was always into like monsters and the Fox monsters and the Harryhausen monsters and all that sort of you know, thing. Um, and that naturally sort of spilled over into being interested in, you know, are there real monsters? Um, it's, uh, it's sort of a circuitous route that I found myself in this current state that I am because um, for whatever reason, uh, I'm sure a lot of people would say that this is indicative of the fact that I actually had some sort of contact. I tend to disagree because I don't have a lot of those other markers, but I had a sort of phobia of alien abduction. Um, <laughs> for whatever reason, like close encounters of the third kind really like uh, horrified me as a child. But uh, I, I sort of Goldilocks my way out, out of believing that these things had any sort of objective reality because it seems silly that there were aliens coming here in craft. And then if you're going to say aliens, well, then where do the hairy dwarves in South America come from? Where do these insectoid mantids come from? Where do, you just seem to be multiplying too many possibilities. Um, unnecessary multiplication, that sort of Occam's razor, the traditional Occam's razor sort of sense. 
Um, so I said, you know, it's nothing, nothing to this alien stuff. But um, it was probably around 2012, 2013, that I started listening to Mysterious Universe and, and, and sort of found a different way into understanding what might be behind the alien abduction phenomena vis-a-vis uh, altered states of consciousness, other things beyond the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which I, at the time, felt was you know, sort of pushing the envelope of credulity. And uh, I, I really got sort of into that idea, and I said, okay, this makes sense. I can sort of work this in. This, this makes sense that there are different faces, that, that there's different skins that these things are using to sort of you know, graft onto uh, graft onto this experience, and it might sort of explain the the variety of of different phenomena that we see. And I sort of became a little bit more involved in it than I was, beyond being again being being a monster child, you know, <laughs> beyond being like you know a kid who was obsessed with like the Gill Man and all the sort of you know Universal monsters and Alien and Predator and all that stuff. Um, and then about oh geez, I guess it was probably twenty early late 2013 early 2014 um that i got a an amazon gift card from my sister-in-law that i spent on a book that i'd heard about called uh rinko sasquatch which was jay robert alley's book rinko sasquatch it's a great book it's all about like the bigfoot accounts in that sort of southern alaskan area um highly recommend it but i remembered reading a bit in that book about uh, how if you were to be confronted by the, uh, the Bukwus, which is one of, uh, it's either Tlingit or Shimshin, uh, their analog for Bigfoot, one of the indigenous analogs for Bigfoot. If you confronted the Bukwus, uh, and it offered you food, you would be trapped. You would become one with the Bukwus. You'd be trapped in the Bukwus's realm forever. And, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but like a long time ago, it got stuck in my brain uh, that uh, there was this food taboo that existed uh, among people who, uh, among cultures that believed in the fairy folk. Specifically, that if you ate food from the fairy folk, you'd be trapped with them forever. Perhaps becoming them, or just at least, you know, existing among them for eternity. And I said, wow, that's really interesting. There's this Celtic belief that if you take food from the fairies, you'll stick with the fairies. And there's, there's this belief in the new world that if you take food from this Bigfoot analog, you'll be trapped with Bigfoot. That's really interesting. Someone should write a book about that. And I, <laughs> it's one of those things where it sticks in your brain. And you're like, so Nick Redfro wrote, wrote a book like about this, right? Because Nick, you know, cranks out like four books a year or whatever. And I just sort of sat on it a while. I'm like, nobody's going to do this but me. And uh, that's, to be completely honest, that that's a, a really confronting moment in your life when you say, I'm going to choose to look like a crazy person. Because even though I don't particularly think this is crazy stuff, most people do. Um, in fact, there were some jobs that I applied for I was employed at the University of Georgia at the time that I started writing a Trojan Feast, but there were some jobs that I applied for post uh, writing that book, and I'm pretty sure that some of them did a Google search and just said that I was a, a nutter, you know, <laughs> because I was writing or even engaging with the stuff. Um, 
but you know, it was just something that like it was. I had a conviction that this was an aspect of these phenomena that some that people had not talked about, and uh, I still think it's an under discussed aspect of uh, of anomalies today. So that's sort of my that was my initiation, and then since then it's it's you know spiraled out. You know, you've got the 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 the, the food thing, which spiraled out into the, the smell thing because nobody had ever really dedicated an entire book to paranormal smells. Um, there have been chapters here and there that people have talked about it, but nobody ever dedicated a book to it and tried to unpack that. And then, um, you know, the, the latest book, Feeds in the Night, was sort of an expression of, of uh, it was sort of its own thing. It didn't quite roll out of that other stuff, but uh, it definitely really tapped into this fairy lore thing, which for some reason really resonated with me. I'm not entirely sure why. So that's a, a very long answer for <laughs> your very straightforward question. Very good. Um, now, something that I find pretty creepy is not only the amount of unsolved, just missing cases, but the unsolved missing cases in national parks and the woods where people will just walk away for a few minutes and then they're never seen again or they're found dead. Uh, those are some of just, I find, some of the most creepy cases that you could come across. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think that um, if you look at the work that someone like David Politis has put into this, which, again, he did a lot of work on this himself before David Politis even started talking about this. It's neither here nor there. I think David Politis has done a lot of good work on this. Um, there are some people who will accuse Politis of cherry-picking I think that's a little bit unfair um, because there are some genuinely strange things happening uh, with a lot of these disappearances. Uh, but it is a common recurring uh, motif that you find in a lot of places in, in uh, actually world, worldwide, I was going to say America, but honestly worldwide. The thing that I think is really interesting about those, because th these cases tend to have certain hallmarks, and so, there's an alternative interpretation of it that I don't think quite gets addressed as often as it should. <laughs> so uh, the specifically talking about like the, sort of the David Pilatus missing 401 parameters are people going out in bright colored clothing, disappearing around boulder fields, disappearing while berry picking, um, getting caught in anomalous storms, um, disappear like being found along uh thoroughfares where they should have been seen in the first place i think that the missing 411 missing people thing is something of a paranormal rorschach test if that makes any sense so depending on whatever your particular interest is you'll you'll see that in the missing 411 stuff, right? So if you're a Bigfoot guy, you're going to say, it's, oh, it's Bigfoot. If you're an alien guy, you're going to say, Bigfoot, you know, it's aliens. And if you're a government conspiracy guy, you know, if you're an Ox Jones type, you're going to be like, oh, uh, the government's abducting people on underground bases and national parks, you know? <laughs> it's it's a, a bit of a Rorschach test. And so I say that to say this, being a guy who's more interested in fairy lore, I realize the irony of me saying that because I see fairy lore baked into this particular phenomena. I mean, the, the, the 
warnings against uh, against berry picking vis-a-vis fairy abduction are quite strong. Um, it's a belief that was very prominent in Ireland, uh, got imported over into Nova Scotia, and you'll find that that was one of the most, one of the riskiest, I should say, one of the riskiest uh, things that you could do in terms of not, you know, getting abducted by the the, the, the fairy folk. Um, similarly, like bright colors that you see in a lot of these cases, a lot of people who disappear in these cases <clears throat> um, are wearing some sort of bright color. While certain colors would offend the fairies, they'd take you away. The, the incidence of storms that appear um, when people are taken, I mean, the fairy, the fairy host used to travel among storms. It, and, and then the boulder field thing, too, which is something that you know, David Polias talks about, is the incidence of uh, disappearances of boulder fields. Boulders are traditionally places where the fairy folk would live. Um, so for anybody who doesn't quite understand what <laughs> the implications of fairy folk are, I think this might be a, a good quick juncture to sort of get that, <laughs> get that in there about exactly what I'm talking about. Um, not Tinkerbell. Uh, it's, it's, it's a specifically Western European cosmology for describing the spirit world. It is not exclusively Western European though. There are, Every indigenous culture across the world, New World, Old, old World, African, Australian, European, Asian, all these cultures have this tradition of uh, basically fairies, uh, diminutive spirit beings who are not necessarily this, you know, the, the dead. Uh, they don't quite fit into that aspect of, uh, of our reality. But uh, they all tend to describe the same thing, which are short beings that uh, have a love of abducting children and tend to live and exist underground. Um, not always short. Some can be tall, some can be shorter. Not always good, not always bad. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's a means of, <clears throat> honestly, it's sort of a, uh, a taxonomy of, of talking about what the other world in terms of a uh, mythological or myth or imaginal sense um, what that is. And, uh, and it's, 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 it's not, again, it's not little ladies with, with wings. It's, it's sort of a different thing. It's, it's a, it's a neither human nor entirely um, godlike uh, status of being uh, very much uh, very much uh, in comparison to uh, the jinn of Middle Eastern folklore as well. Um, so it's a sort of in-between, not, not human, not godlike <laughs> level of spirit uh, phenomena that, uh, that, that was talked about in the British Isles. And I find, like, I, I find that that is a very parsimonious way of interpreting a lot of what we now term anomalistics, um, a lot of the mystery stuff that we talk about. Um, I, I, I constantly have to check myself to make sure that I'm not being the Giorgio Sukalos of, <laughs> of, of fairy lore, you know, therefore fairies. I find that it's, it's very explicative. I don't think that the, I don't think that saying that it's fairies really answers anything. I think it's a way of understanding something. I, I think that the alien saying that, you know, UFOs and extraterrestrials are 
literally extraterrestrials. I think it's a little bit lacking. I think that saying that it's literally fairies is lacking. I think it's saying it's gens lacking. I think these all are describing the same thing. Um, but I think that the phenomena, these phenomena in general have much more of a metaphysical slash spiritual component than they do an objective nuts and bolts, uh, little green scientists and, and metal spaceship component to them. And, you know, people may disagree with me. That's fine. They, they may be right. Um, but that's just sort of where I've sort of Goldilocks my way into, into understanding all this. Well, when you look at, like you said, all the strange things that are associated with the um, anomalous, you know, missing people, like, uh, you know, the strange weather, lights, you know, you can, you can say that it's Bigfoot, but then it, all, the, all these other strange things don't go with that phenomenon. You can say it's UFOs, but then they have other aspects of it that fit nothing with the UFO phenomenon. So it seems like it's something much deeper uh than we could ever understand really well i don't think that anything that we i don't think that any answer quote unquote that we apply to any of the stuff really maps on perfectly um it doesn't i i, I will go to the mat about how closely fairy lore and the alien abduction slash contact experience mirror each mirror each other but um I think if you're looking at something like the the missing person phenomena, uh, if you have any explanation, including my own preferred explanation, you're going to omit some stuff that's really strange that doesn't quite map on. Um, you know, the folks who talk about the missing 411, missing person phenomena being an aspect of Bigfoot abductions are ignoring the fact that there's a propensity for strange weather to crop up. Right. <laughs> because I think, I think regardless of your cosmology of Bigfoot, whatever it might be, you're not going to say that Bigfoot can like control the rain. Now I have a book that's coming out that sort of argues that a little bit, but it's, but it's vis-a-vis -vis fairy lore, you know, um, similarly, you know, extraterrestrials in the, in the materialist nuts and bolts, extraterrestrial hypothesis sense it it's 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 a little bit too there are aspects that do not seem to suggest that it's like a catch and release program um so again it comes back to that rorschach test <laughs> aspect of this whole thing um I don't think that there's a really good answer for it i think i i personally feel like the sort of fairy lore the and I mean this worldwide, um, tends to answer more questions than it raises uh, about the uh, missing 401 stuff, but it's not perfect. Um, something that I found really fascinating was a lot of the missing, the, the uh, missing persons that uh, David Polanis has covered uh, would be found having removed pieces of clothing. If a body was found, I should say, if a body was found, they had removed pieces of clothing and be, laying face down in the dirt. And uh, it was <clears throat> believed if you were to properly respect the Minahune, the Australian fairy folk, uh, if you were to pro properly respect the Minahune, you would strip naked and uh, you know, prostrate yourself face down before them, naked, 
<laughs> so that's just one of those things. That's, it's it's a weird little detail. I, I again, I don't quite know what to make with make of it, and that's that's where I personally find a lot of the resonance with a lot of this odd phenomena is not necessarily in the veracity of any particular account, but the consistency. I think the consistency of accounts cross culturally, uh, cr- across time, is really where the meat and potatoes of, you know, unexplained studies really lies. It's not the veracity of any account. It's the consistency between accounts, if that makes any sense. Definitely. And how far back did you say that we can actually trace this fairy lore? Well, it's interesting. You know, um, I mean, it's hard to put a timestamp on stuff like, indigenous American fairy lore uh, and equally difficult to put a, a timestamp on African fairy lore. Um, uh, when we think, when we tend to think of fairies in the Celtic sense, which is perhaps the most consistent with the modern abduction experience that might have something to say about the fact that uh, the new world is mostly European colonized. That makes any sense. Like we imported our own belief system and whatever we believe sort of follows over here. If you put up, if you try to look at um, the, uh, the Celtic fairy canon, it does predate Christianity. Um, there are certain aspects of it that do not. Um, something that I've really uh, found a lot of interest in is the, the change in lore which is the idea that uh, certain, the, the idea that the fairies would substitute human uh, fairy children for human children in an effort to sort of uh, uh, bolster their breeding stock. That does not particularly predate the appearance of Christianity in the British Isles. Um, but the the centrality of fairy lore itself and a lot of those trappings are indeed pre-Christian. Um, there's a little bit, there's actually really what I've been playing with, and this might be like book, my next book at some point. Um, I, 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 I really find it compelling how a certain theories of uh, pre-Roman indigenous people tend to, tend to mirror uh, fairy lore. So it was quite vogue, actually, at one point, a very, very 19th century uh, notion that, uh, that fairy lore in all countries, which obviously this doesn't map onto all countries because it's, it's you know, indigenous people had this stuff before this, any of this happened, but especially British Isles, that indigenous um, people were the basis for fairy lore. So the idea, you know, fairies tended to uh, be afraid of iron. The idea was that, well, perhaps indigenous people actually feared iron because it was stronger than their, you know, current, uh, you know, weapons and other implements. Um, the the idea that the fairies would exchange uh, their children, their sickly children, with uh, healthy, you know, children. Well, perhaps these were indigenous peoples trading their own sickly children with the healthy invaders' children. Fairies living underground, you know people literally, you know, indigenous people literally being, being driven underground. Um, 
it was it was quite vogue to to think that a lot of the fairy lore was describing depending on your colonized uh region that uh that it was um literally describing sort of an ancestral race that's been again literally and figuratively driven underground so in the case of uh the british isles the picts in the case of uh scandinavian countries the laplanders etc um I think that there's actually some some validity to that. Again, it's fallen out of vogue in academia, <clears throat> um, but uh, I I kind of wonder if there's not like there's not an ethnographic and sort of supernatural explanation for the boat for for both those things that we're actually that for example in the case of of just just be to streamline this conversation that yes the Romans moved into the British Isles, they suppressed an indigenous people. They exhibited all these things that we associate with the fairy folk, but they also were haunted, <laughs> literally were haunted by this, the, the spirits of these indigenous people. Because again, if you go over to uh, the British Isles uh, and you look at uh, what are traditionally held to be fairy areas, fairy forts, fairy mounds, fairy rafts, fairy hills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They are unambiguously human sites of habitation. Um, you know, in, in Cornwall, they're called rounds, and, and the, in Ireland, which is one of the most uh, prolific sort of sites of fairy activity, they're fairy hills, fairy forts, fairy rafts, fairy leos. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so what I've been sort of playing with for a while is that uh yes the sort of academic uh ethnographic idea is true like the the fairy folk is describing um the suppression of an indigenous people but it's the haunting of those areas it's the haunting of those fairy fairy those fairy forts those fairy areas that were built by the indigenous people they're still haunting that sort of area. And that's sort of an idea that I've been playing with for a while. I, that was really circuitous. I, I apologize for, <laughs> for how circuitous that was. No worries. Now, okay, say your child is abducted. What would be some of the indications that it was abducted by a fairy? Well, um, so I have to... Um, I have to put a little bit of a caveat on this because I think it is a little bit going to sound more negative than I mean for it to, but uh, a little bit disingenuous to say that I think that um, that I think that every instance of you know a child who was abducted by fairies was actually abducted by fairies because if you look at uh if you look at sort of the, the historical record it becomes very clear that there were a lot of reasons why uh why fairy abduction was blamed for a child that didn't quite function as it should um infanticide was horrifically um horrifically prevalent in ireland uh, prior to uh, prior to the uh, 
well, prior to the 19th century. I mean, there, there's a, a book that I have cited a couple of times uh, by, her name was Elaine Farrell. It's called A, a Most Diabolical Deed. And uh, the, the statistic is, uh, it's, it's shockingly graphic. I can't remember. I believe it's something like, it's something in the order of 5,000 deaths of infants that were indeed murders of children who were over two years old in a 50 year period, which is, it's an Island the size of Indiana. Like it's, it's an Island the size of Indiana, like (laughs) over 50 years. It's crazy. Um, uh, and that, that, that I'm pretty sure that numbers, right. It might be actually might be, I might be remembering a little bit less lessened, but, uh, so th- there is a there is an ex- like a lot of paranormal stuff. There is an excuse component to this, right? People use the paranormal as an excuse to do horrific things, and they still do this today. Um, but having said that, uh, there are certain uh, parameters that uh, if the fairy lore is to be uh, believed, um, would suggest that your child had been replaced with a changeling. So the idea was that the fairy folk, for whatever reason, a lot of people said it was because they lacked uh, the, uh, their, their bloodline needed sort of a shot in the arm. They needed to be sort of bolstered. Their bloodline needed to be bolstered because they were a dying race, which again, maps with a lot of alien abduction stuff nowadays. Um, the idea that the fairies would take a human child and, uh, and use it to sort of, improve the breeding stock of their own fairy race. At the same time, they would do one of multiple things. They would replace the child with one of several things, which would be either a stock or fetch, which is probably the least common sort of thing that you see. Um, stock or fetch would mean literally a, a log or a something that was glamored, something that was like, you know, enchanted to appear as a, as a human child. Um, it, would, it might be a fairy baby, uh, which you will find uh, in a lot of stories because the idea was that uh, since fairy food itself was a sham, I mentioned the idea of glamour, enchantment, fairy food was always, you know, detritus leaves, twigs, etc., be glamoured to appear magical. Similarly, because of that, fairy children couldn't get actual sustenance from fairy milk, so they'd human milk was like the gold standard <laughs> of what they would want. Or... So we have stocks, we have stocks and fetches, we have fairy babies, and we have old fairy people who were sort of made to look like little human babies. So they'd take your human baby and they'd replace it with an older fairy baby. And the idea was this sort of would not only be like a way of the uh, fairy folk uh, getting extra sustenance or rather uh, improving the bloodline of the fairy folk, but at the same time, one of their own would enjoy this wonderful like basically life of hospice, if you will, <laughs> in the, uh, in the, in the uh, crib of, of, a, of, a, of a young infant. Um, so with that in mind, uh, the things that you would normally look out for um, with uh, regards to uh, changelings, you know, fairy substitution, would be uh, a, a shriveled or wizened face. Um, very commonly in these folk, folk tales, the uh, the changeling speaks or exhibits some sort of 
ability beyond its years. You know, there's a, a very famous uh, motif of the uh, the tailor and the changeling, which is where, you know, while no one's looking, that the 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 child, the fairy child, will play like the bagpipes or something, which you know, a child could do. Um, but uh, noisiness, um, insatiability in terms of eating and, and drinking and never being satisfied, um, being just generally cantankerous and difficult to get along with, um, never growing, um, and being sort of oddly proportioned. Well, you'll find those well. Um, sometimes you would find uh, fairies, fairy changeling babies who would... Uh, never grow teeth or they would grow teeth too quickly or they would have like sharp teeth or it's just anything sort of abnormal. You know, uh, there are some, some of the Russian fairy changeling motifs actually have uh, babies who end up growing facial hair. <laughs> um, but in general, it's just something that's abnormal about your child, which again, like being, a, I think that there is an objective reality to the paranormal. I do. Uh, in fact, think it, I mean, like, again, I, I just, I, I, I I don't want to say believe because that implies some sort of degree of faith. I have convinced myself after reading that there's a, an actual objective reality to a lot of this stuff. But at the same time, uh, you can't look at a lot of this fairy stuff and not see that uh, you just you have to, it's a case by case basis, anything that seems abnormal for ch for children. And again, tragically, as I sort of alluded to earlier, um, it was, you could use the fairy changeling thing as a means of uh, explaining away developmental disabilities. And it's, it's actually, you could do an entire book just on, I mean, I, I have a chapter on it in Thieves in the Night, but you could do an entire book on the medical explanations for what changelings were trying to describe. Autism is a popular candidate. Progeria is a popular candidate. Again, at any given time, there are only 100 cases of progeria in the world, so it's not <laughs> it's not a likely answer. But uh, there are no shortage of uh, there is no shortage of um, no shortage of uh, of different conditions and syndromes that really tend to correspond to the fairy changeling thing. The weird thing that doesn't get addressed when people try to explain away the changeling phenomena vis-a-vis -vis, uh, developmental disorders, syndrome, etc., is that there is often in changeling cases an expression of the child being wise beyond their years, by which I mean the fairy baby will actually talk <laughs> which is, you know, if, if, if we're dealing with, uh, with variations on, uh, if we're dealing with variations on literally not in, a, in an offensive way, if we're dealing with variations on retardism, uh, that shouldn't be the case. Uh, that's, that's one of the big criticisms that a lot of people have. Having said that, you know, there are certain things, there are certain phenomena, there are certain, certain, uh, disorders that tend to map very closely onto the changeling phenomena, but it doesn't explain all of it. Um, yeah. And the, uh, the fact that, you know, 
they thought it was replaced by, you know, elderly fairies or, you know, they saw um, a baby, but it was just like a pile of sticks or, or wood or something. That part is uh, really fascinating to me. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's um, you know, there, there, are, there are cases where uh, this, this is, if anybody's really interested in the subject, uh, before you even think about buying my book, <laughs> um, you know, look into uh, uh, Evans Wentz's uh, Celtic uh, Fairy Faith in the Celtic Countries, which is available freely as a PDF everywhere you go. Um, it's a great book, and it talks at length about a lot of the stuff, but also um, some changeling to survive. And because typically the changeling narrative is that either you found a way to, to bring your child back, which typically involved threatening the, the fairy child so that, you know, your, your own child would be brought back because the fairy folk could one of their own hurt or they would die uh, prematurely. Um, but there are plenty of examples in, uh, you know, Walter Evans Wentz's uh, fairy faith in Celtic countries of changelings who survived and who lived and who were hanging around. Um, it's interesting to, th to look at how that particular book, again, just Google fairy faith in the Celtic countries and you'll find plenty of places to read this book. Um, people were very much of the opinion that this was a reality as early as I believe the copyright on that is, I believe the copyright on that is in 1911. Um, and he was talking to folks who were, you know, who were talking about encountering fairies in their youth who were, you know, older folks. then. so it's, this is not so far removed in history as we'd like to think. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting too to like sort of overlay that with, uh, again, Worldwide beliefs, Asian, African, Australian, uh, and Native North American. There's a consistency there that makes you say, "Well, maybe you know, maybe this there's something to it that isn't just explicable by modern medical science." And again, I I, I personally am of the opinion that there might be a medical explanation in terms of how we perceive it and. A, an anomalous explanation as well. I think that we uh, that we do ourselves a disservice by not acknowledging that certain things have a materialist and a spiritual, for lack of a better term, uh, explanation at the same time. Now, when it comes to the the changeling thing, you said that sometimes they would actually get the children back. How how would they go about? getting a child back uh, after it was replaced by a changeling? Well, this is part of where it gets really grisly. I mean, like, so while I was, the irony of this is not lost on me at all. While I was uh, writing and, uh, and sort of finalizing Thieves in the Night, uh, my wife was pregnant with the twins. So, <laughs> so it, it all sort of hit home really hard. Um, and again, it, it ties into that sort of uh, culturally mandated excuse for child abuse, which is just 
effing awful. Um, uh, so, but, but generally that was, was the, the way that you would get a, ch- a changeling to reveal itself. I mean, there was a, there was a grandmother in the uh, late uh, 19th century who uh, was acquitted for drowning her granddaughter or grandson rather because she was trying to put the ferry out of it to, to quote her in Ireland um, because she believed that by sort of drowning this changeling, she would actually get her own grandchild back. And it turns out it was actually her own grandchild. So you'll find a lot of child abuse, um, a lot of child abuse in, 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 in fairy lore. Um, some of it's pretty benign. Um, some of it's, uh, you know, just, but some, but a lot of it's not, you know, you'll, you'll find, uh, stories of people believing that they had a changeling and, uh, like, you know, beating it, um, you know, dosing it with foxglove. That was a very popular remedy in Ireland, which is, you know, uh, uh, poison in and of itself. Um, tossing urine into the child's face, like beating with birches. Um, and, and also like, honestly, you know, the baking or cooking or like putting the child over, over flames. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that people think is the origin of the term, a trial by fire is, you know, it's a, a little, literally a trial, like you no know, testing whether or not this is actually a human being or not. Um, the idea behind that, you know, one of the one of the less one of the less uh, offensive <laughs> methods was uh, by abandoning a child at a crossroads or you know in a in a in a graveyard or something like that. Uh, the the idea behind it was that if the fairy folk saw you abusing one of their own, which the changelings were, you know. Uh, that they would wish to rescue one of their own kind and return your own baby to you. Um, but, you know, equally common was just trying to figure out whether or not you had a changeling, right? So people would suspect that they had a changeling. It would not eat. It would, or, or it would eat too much, and it wouldn't gain any weight. And it would cry, and it would be just this obnoxious baby. And the idea in a lot of uh, a lot of uh, European co- countries in general would be to uh, do something very absurd, so as to coax it to coax the changeling to remark. Because obviously, a human child is not going to remark on something bizarre when they're a couple of months old. But if you were a an old changeling man, you might. So if you look at uh, a lot of uh, you know northern Scandinavian countries, Laplanders and whatnot, uh, they would build a they would fashion a spoon that was so long that would just like lash bits of spoon, <laughs> bits of the handle all the way so it went all the way up the the chimney. And the idea was to get the uh, to, by, by doing this, you would uh, lull the changeling into saying, "I've never seen a spoon so long in my life, and I've lived three thousand years," you know, or <laughs> or. Uh, the, the most common, the most common thing that you find in a lot of countries, Germanic and uh, also, you know, all the Western European countries, is you'd find uh, this 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 concept of the brewery of eggshells, or just the idea of cooking or brewing something inside something that shouldn't be cooked or brewed in. So you'll find uh, 
variations on this. It'll be like, you know, the brewery of eggshells, the idea of brewing beer in eggshells or making porridge in, you know, oyster shells or something like this. So, so, two, two of these things together, they just seem completely nonsensical. And the idea would be that uh, the, the mother, in, her, in terms of wanting to out the changeling, would would uh, go about this business of, let's say, brewing beer and eggshells. And the changeling would say, what's going on? And she'd say, well, I'm brewing beer and eggshells. And the changeling would say, well, I've you know been around as long as uh as long as the trees in the forest and i've never seen such in my entire life and that would sort of out the out the uh out the changeling as being something other than a mortal babe who had only lived a couple of months rather having lived <laughs> years and years again it's it's you can't i i i would have a hard problem with anyone who takes a story like that as anything besides an actual literal fairy tale in that sense, you know, that's something that's uh, fantastical and sort of a little bit goofy. And, uh, but I think that the, the roots of it might have some sort of actual objective reality way deep, way, 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 way deep, way buried in there. Now, another similarity with the um, alien abduction phenomenon and fairy lore is, well, you know, uh, with alien abductions, sometimes people claim they have foreign objects or actual objects have been found, um, but there's also been foreign objects associated with fairy lore. Isn't that right? Really glad that you brought this up because uh, I sort of wished that I had spent a little bit more time to talking about this in Thieves of the Night. Um, so I am 100% convinced that anything that you find in the UFO experiencer lore, I say lore not pejoratively, not like it's fiction, I say lore in terms of like sort of the body of of that uh, that study, anything that you find in UFO experience or lore, you will find in uh, fairy lore. You'll find an analog, hundred um, percent. This <laughs> we talk about this sort of ad nauseum, but you know, <clears throat> little beings with wands that paralyze you, that uh, that have a taller being that supervises them. This is all like in both of these things. <clears throat> But the two things, the, 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 the sort of shared bit of things that the shared phenomena that I couldn't quite reconcile was why are there not analogs for uh, alien implants, for lack of a better term, in fairy lore? So the idea in modern abduction lore is that you'll find an alien that, you know, somebody will be taking them over to craft and they'll have something placed below their skin or they'll have like, you know, scoop marks taken out of their hands. Something will be implanted in the body um, that, uh, that is in, in terms of the materialist UFO nuts and bolts sort of thing is like a tracking device, which whenever these things have been examined uh, scientifically, they've always been mundane bits of iron or just like, 
they, they've been actual physical objects. They've just never had any, they've never shown any example of what we would recognize as transmittable technology. Um, of course, you know, people like Eddie Bullard uh, in his uh, seminal work, uh, UFO Abductions and Measure of Mystery, two work volume uh, that's kind of hard to come by, uh, but is a great work. I'm going to get their hands on it. Um, <clears throat> talked about how in a lot of shamanic traditions, uh, people would be taken aboard or taken to the other world, disassembled a crystal or some sort of magical rock or something would be placed in their body and they'd be put back together. Obviously that's an analog for the alien abduction motif. But my thing was specifically with the fairy lore, why why have you not seen that? Um and that's when I discovered the fairy blast, which <clears throat> I think is uh is uh one of the more fascinating aspects of fairy lore that I never expected to really line up with alien abduction you know, lore as, as, as it has. But having said that, the idea of the fairy blast is where we get the term blustery, same Germanic root, blast, blustery, blister. These are all the same roots. So blast, gust of wind, blustery, blustery day, gust of wind, blister, a raised spot on your, you know, your body, on your skin. And uh, the idea was that if you offended the fairy folk, uh, you would get hit with a fairy blast, and the fairy blast would manifest in some sort of uh, pustule or, again, blister, um, <clears throat> and uh, would, if, if lanced or opened up, would contain some sort of foreign object. Anything from bone to feathers to, you know, ceramics to, to you know uh, stones to any, any, any number of things and it's 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 uh it's hard to look at that and not see a direct analog to the you know to the alien implant phenomenon i personally i think um you know the idea that there are these tiny little beings that will implant you with something um because a lot of these alien implants, even though a lot of abductees want to say that they're some sort of technology, are often to be re often revealed to be mundane, like look like iron deposits. And I'm not calling the the claims of these individuals in question at all. It's not what I'm doing. Um, but rather, I'm saying that what they're describing has a real resonance with this folklore uh, that we've seen. You know, across generations, one of my one of what wife on, you know, as if that wasn't compelling enough, um, <clears throat> there was a, a case from I believe Nova Scotia, which again was one of those countries that just like literally just copied and pasted <laughs> Irish folklore right over, uh, who uh, had a who had offended the fairies and got hit with a fairy blast, and they found that they had a pustule that was sprouting sp strings and they kept on pulling it strings, 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 strings. And it's interesting to compare that description uh, in this particular case I'm thinking of to something like Morgellons disease. Now, whether or not you think Morgellons disease is a real thing, whatever it's Morgellons disease describes people describes uh, what seemed to be fibrous, uh, fibrous 
pieces of some sort of nature emerging from, you know, a lesion. And some in the abduction community have, a, have associated this with uh, being a symptom of an abduction. So we have on one side a very clear, well-documented case of somebody who's been hit with a fairy blast and gets this, these strings that keep on coming out of their arm. On the other hand, you have some people who are associated with alien abductions who think that Morgellons disease, which tends to manifest in fibrous string-like uh, bits coming out of certain body lesions uh, with, uh, with alien, alien abduction and alien implants as well. And to me, that was, that was the moment where I'm like, yep, yep, yep I'm going to stop making, <laughs> I'm going to stop making, uh, I'm going to stop apologizing rather <laughs> for, uh, for, you know, comparing aliens and fairies because it just, it's, to me, it's, it's cut and dry that it's, it's 100% explaining the same thing. And that's part of why I ended up writing Thieves in the Night to begin with is because I couldn't quite reconcile the hybrid thing, alien, you know, the alien extra, extraterrestrial human hybrid thing with uh, fairy lore. And I ended, ended up sort of, I think, working my way through that. It's kind of almost like a me working my way through it myself in the book. There seems to be like a definite uh, interdimensional aspect to this. It seems that they're here, like, uh, but on a different plane of existence. Um, do you see it that there's a different realm that these beings exist in that would, you know, could be um, just a different dimension close to ours? Well, I mean, I, I'm not going to say no to anything. Um, I. I feel relatively certain saying that if UFOs slash the alien experience um, is indeed real, which I think there's overwhelming evidence that it is, I think that saying that it's, I think that it's physicality is up for discussion, <laughs> debate, discussion, whatever. Um, I am historically and, and publicly not a fan of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Um, I throw around words like spiritual, metaphysical. I'm not even sure what that means. You know, um, the dimensional thing is appealing, but at the same time, it it starts to feel if you start going, not that you said this, but if you start to do like, start to talk about quantum stuff and this and that, and the other, it starts to sound a little bit like that old medieval church, you know, sort of, uh, <laughs> that old medieval church, uh, thought experiment, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. And it's, you know, interdimensional. Sure. What does that mean? Does that mean anything? Is that anything more tangible than me saying spiritual, than me saying metaphysical, than me saying that it's part of a simulation model? Um, you know, is it is it any more uh, <clears throat> is it any more profound than that whole flatland concept? You know, the idea that uh, the idea of a three dimensional thing coming into a two dimensional space. Uh, 
or four-dimensional into three-dimensional. Um, you know, where I so, sort of settled with this, the one thing that I'm, I'm relatively confidently, confident say, in saying about this phenomena is that even if there is, even if it is, by and large, a materialist thing, by which I mean, even if it is actual nuts and bolts aliens, or rather, sorry, flesh and flesh and blood aliens in a nuts and bolts spacecraft, like a lot of techno techno fetishists want to believe, um, there's a weird component to it. And if there's a weird component to it, but weird by by which by we by saying weird, I mean a consciousness-based telekinetic psi component to it. Um, then, 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 why do we need to focus on it being a material thing? Um, there are most a shocking amount of UFO sightings and an almost exclusive amount of CE3s feature some degree of telepathic communication. If that's the case, that implies that it need not be a physical craft coming down here it could be any number of things it might be physical craft who knows maybe it's you know maybe it's uh maybe it's <laughs> you know maybe, maybe it's extraterrestrial super spies possibly or it's a thought projection from another planet that's you know who has that has super spies on its own planet that are able to transcend time and space um if if there is a psychic component to the contact experience, which there seems to be, then we have no idea what we're dealing with. And that's the thing that I keep coming back to personally. Um, uh, if, if there is a psychic component to the alien contact experience, then that means that materialism as a model Materialism meaning that the only things that matter are physical matter is broken. A lot of people push back on this and they say, well, you know, I, I know that if I drop my wallet, it'll, you know, bounce off the floor. It's not what I'm saying. If you have a black and white film and you add green, is it, is it a black and white film anymore? No, it's not. It's a black and white and green film. doesn't take away black, doesn't take away white, but it's fundamentally different. You can't say it's a black and white film anymore because there's something else in there. So just because we've learned a lot of stuff through investigating reality through a materialist lens, if there is a component that, uh, of, of consciousness of the, the psychic model, if that is a reality, then it, uh, it means that, our existence is a lot stranger than we thought it was. Having said that, now we have no idea what we're dealing with <laughs> in terms of like our basic fundamental tenets of reality. Um, 
So, I mean, you know, if, 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 if aliens can communicate telepathically, then who knows that they're, maybe they're not coming down here in little nuts and bolts spacecraft. Maybe they're, you know, having their own equivalent of remote viewing experiments from Zebel Ganubi. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's a, it all, you know, or, or maybe they're spirit phenomena, or maybe it's interdimensional. Maybe it's something bleeding through from a simulation. Maybe it's a manifestation of the you know, collective unconscious, as, as clunky as a term as that is. Uh, we just don't know. Um, so I, 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 I have a problem with anyone who says that. I have a problem with anyone who claims a monopoly on truth based on anything involving this stuff. I mean, I've been going back and forth on Twitter often about people who want to say that just because UFOs appear on radar, they have some sort of physical component. Possibly, you know, but I, but there's plenty of evidence of the non-physical in other disciplines of anomalistic study having an impact on the physical world, right? So, I mean, one of the most common things of ghost hunting, especially in the 19th century, was to put down talcum powder and wait for footprints to manifest. The non-physical can have a physical impact. So just because something appears on radar doesn't necessarily mean it's actually like physical in the sense that we would traditionally understand it. But a lot of people, you know, see radar data and, and a visual confirmation. They say, oh, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be Independence Day. It's got to be Alien. It's got to be E.T. It's got to be close to the third kind. I disagree inc incredibly hard with that, uh, you know. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that we as human beings can spoof radar, we can hide radar signatures ourselves. You know, it's the reason the, the stealth bomber is invented. Um, the one thing I think that's really holding back a lot of these studies in terms of uh, the unexplained anomalies and such, Bigfoot, ghosts, aliens, etc., is this misperception that the physical and the non-physical are somehow at odds with each other. And that's just not the case. Non-physical things appear to have um, physical impacts, just as physical things tend to have non-physical impacts. I mean, you know, if, if, you have a, if you have a relationship with somebody and you love them, that's a physical thing having a non-physical impact. And I think that... Uh, in order to mature, I think that a lot of ufology, cryptozoology, uh, you know, ghost, uh, ghost hunters, press psychology, really, um, need, to, need to get over that because it's a false dichotomy between physical and non-physical. That was a super rambling answer, <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> but I hope you take my meaning. Yeah, definitely. Um, what are your thoughts on the possibilities that we may be able to communicate with these entities and possibly access these realms through psychedelics. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> I mean, so I, I'm, I'm more than any of in terms of the psychedelic experience. I mean, I, I've, I've never actually taken a substance that would be qualified as psychoactive. So I'm, I, you know, it's, I'm a little bit like a virgin talking about 
you know, being a porn star here, but, uh, but I think that there's a strong, a strong body of work that suggests that that is a means of, of communicating with whatever this is. If you look at the work of someone like Rick Strassman, the DMT studies, then, you know, to hell with the laboratory controlled stuff. I mean, the stuff that Terrence McKinney used to talk about. I mean, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you're a ufologist and you haven't listened to, you know, if, if you're a ufologist and you don't listen to 10 hours of Terrence McKenna per year, like I, I can't take you seriously because he was on point with a lot of the stuff and a lot of the stuff was, was a psychedelic revelation. Um, I think that there is some, there is a degree of parsimony in the concept that perhaps interfacing with uh, these beings with the other world, for lack of a better term, is facilitated by, you know, dimethyltryptamine. Now, you know, we think about that and, in uh, psychedelic circles as being, you know, manufactured, but we all, you know, we're all carrying dimethyltryptamine in our bodies and there are certain ways to uh, unlock that and certain ways to, uh, to increase that interaction. And, and if you look at like a lot of these experiences, they map on really closely. I mean, one, one of the first things you hear about from people with dimethyltryptamine is that who uh, take dimethyltryptamine rather is that they'll experience like some sort of, buzzing sound and there's a breakthrough into a breakthrough into a uh, a larger space that's domed um and they'll be taken apart and put back together again i mean this is this is all stuff that you hear in the alien abduction experience as well and that's not to say that like people who are experiencing alien abductions are just sort of tripping on their own <laughs> doing it on the natch you know, <laughs> it's not it's not saying that, um, but uh, but there are a lot of comparisons there that, that really do resonate. And uh, if you look at uh, the way that that sort of experience maps onto a lot of a lot of uh, spiritual disciplines, especially Eastern spiritual disciplines, um, it seems like there's something to that. Uh, I. I think that, I mean, there's so many ways to go with this. I, I, I personally have felt for a long time that the contact experience, which the, the longer I get into this, the more I want to separate that from like, you know, literal UFOs. The contact experience has a lot more to do with uh, altered states of consciousness than anything else. The thing that you'll hear a lot of times from these people is that uh, their experience felt more real than real, both in alien abductions and in uh, in the uh, in terms of taking you know altered taking different uh, <coughs> excuse me taking uh, psychedelic substances, um, and you know I, I I've personally spoken with people who have had shared visions of ufos with a close friend or life partner after taking mushrooms which in terms of the way that we scientifically view that that shouldn't 
that shouldn't happen that way. You know, <laughs> people, you know, two people taking the same substance, you know, even if it's the same dosage and everything, same substance, same dosage, they shouldn't both experience a shared hallucination. But shared hallucinations are a very, very common thing. Um, so I think that it's, uh, I think that it's, it's, it's part of this process and part of the way of understanding. Having said that, let's not confuse, uh, let's not confuse the door for the key or the room for the door, something along those lines. Um, just because something unlocks something else doesn't mean that that is the thing. You know, a lot of, a lot of people, uh, especially in the, uh, the skeptical community will say, well, yeah, well, maybe it is, you know, an endogenous dump of dimethyltryptamine, which by the way, in case anybody doesn't know, dimethyltryptamine is producing the brain. You're all, <laughs> you're all carrying drugs right now as you're listening. <laughs> like we're all, we're all, we all have dimethyltryptamine, but uh, they might say, well, maybe that is the case, but that's not, again, the, the, the key is not the room, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Um, we all have the key, but uh, the room, by merely the fact that we can unlock that, we can access that. It doesn't mean that is that is the answer for why we're seeing stuff. Um, I yeah, so I, I think that's that's a huge part of it, and that sort of ties in with you know what I sort of uh, thought about a little bit with uh, Trojan feasts is the idea of, if not literally, the idea of uh, food as symbol. You know, it that can unlock or encourage the uh, the production of dimethyltryptamine somehow uh, to, to facilitate experience with the other. And you know what? I've, there are people that you talk to who have, you know, taken a bunch of mushrooms and gone to see Spider-Man. And there are people you talk to who have taken a bunch of mushrooms and, had the secrets of the universe revealed to him. And uh, I tend to lean towards the latter uh, because there's been a lot of insight that's been gleaned from, from stuff like that. Now, uh, I thought to close tonight, we could talk about, I just want to get your thoughts on what's happening with the UFO phenomenon right now. We're seeing it in the mainstream media so much right now that it's UFO mania, um, you know, all the leaks coming out from the government. Uh, the more I do research into the UFO phenomenon, the more I see that the physical aspect kind of falls away. It's not a nuts and bolts thing. Uh, the more I look into it, it seems the less I actually know. And it would seem with all these black projects that our government or shadow government has that they would know a lot more. What are your thoughts on what's happening right now with what's going on? Is it preparation, disinformation? Any thoughts on it? Okay, so um, <laughs> I'm thinking about <coughs> um, spending the next four hours talking about this. Um, I I think there are some very genuine folks who are very invested in the disclosure concept. I think um, as my good friend Greg Bishop once put it, 
expecting disclosure to come from the government, the United States government, is akin to being sort of a battered girlfriend. And he finally says that he's going to clean his act up and he shows up on your doorstep with a bunch of roses and champagne. It's like, why should I believe you now? I, I feel like there's not a lot of historical perspective uh, for the current disclosure movement. Having said that, uh, I think that things, I think that the environment is definitely tangibly different. Um, I, I think that, uh, I believe it was December of 2017, that the New York Times article came out talking about UFOs. Um, I think that that has changed the conversation. I think a lot of people are taking it more seriously. I see the pendulum swinging back towards, towards ridicule. Um, what, what really hurts me is I don't feel like, I feel like a lot of people involved in the current disclosure movement don't see that they can, they don't, it appears as if they, it appears as if they don't think that they can be manipulated. Um, I've spoken with some people that have credibly suggested that there is something much more sinister going on with the whole to the stars Academy. And that's as comfortable as I will be saying that. Um, but at the very least, uh, I, I think that you have to realize that perception is being managed. You know, uh, one of the things, one of my, one of my personal heroes, Chris O'Brien, uh, said was, you know, once a spook, always spooky. And, uh, there's plenty of spooks involved with the whole TTSA thing. Um, there, they have, there are lifelong people involved in perception management of, uh, phenomena and involved in, uh, managing how people interpret these things and using those and wielding it to the government's advantage. Um, I I think that everybody involved in the whole Nimitz Tic Tac case is being very earnest. Uh, sorry, anybody who's not listening, anybody who's listening, this is what we're talking about. Just just do Tic Tac UFO, and you'll just find out everything you need to. Um, I think that everybody is being very earnest, and I think there's some people around it who are who are who are being very earnest about their interpretation. I just don't think that they are a lot of the people that I see involved with this are not a um, historically informed B are overly hopeful about what will happen and C they just, I don't think a lot of them really grasp the possibilities that open up when you consider that this might not be little green scientists coming down and nuts and bolts spacecraft. Um, you know, I don't put anything past whatever this is. Um, I don't think that whatever the, whatever's behind this phenomena, I don't think whatever's behind this phenomena is incapable of anything that makes sense. 
which sounds vaguely like sounds vaguely religious honestly and i i get that like it's it's kind of superstitious and you know but if not even talking about the 70 years of you know since since kenneth arnold saw flying saucers but like the if if the the history of us seeing things in the sky and interacting with it has shown us anything it's that this is It's uh, it's not a player in the game. It's writing the code of the game. So the idea that it might appear to be this or that or the other until I have until you know until I see somebody coming forward with like a piece of a flying saucer, I'm not gonna. You know, I think we're being manipulated. Like it's just it's just the way it's always gone. Um, and the manipulation thing happens at the microcosmic and the macrocosmic, you know, scale. I mean, like individuals are manipulated into looking like fools. Um, and <laughs> people who've tried bigger studies are manipulated and looking like fools too. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's baked into what this is. Um, so I'm not really sure if I'm even answering your question or not. Um, but uh, I feel like, there's a lot of there's a lot of noise and sound and fury about progress and about revealing somehow the reality of this phenomena and while I feel like indeed the public is coming around to the fact that there is something genuinely anomalous going on I suspect that a lot of folks are taking that acknowledgement as a tacit, uh, as a tacit confirmation of extraterrestrials coming down here, and I don't think that's I don't think that's what's going on at all. Um, and that you know. It may be right. The extraterrestrial hypothesis may be right, but uh, it it's there's a lot of stuff that doesn't quite jive with that, and uh, I think that there's a lot of people who aren't pulling apart the nuances of of this whole thing. I mean, one of the things that I keep coming back to is you know because this is sort of what's in the water. This might not be specifically what you're talking about, but you know <laughs> I've mentioned a couple of times. Um, the, the Stars Academy, TTSA. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 front man is Tom DeLonge, and part of the part of the core of that is these books that DeLonge has authored with uh, with uh, Peter Lavenda. And the irony that a lot of the these TTSA folks don't realize is that Lavenda is an occultist. Like it's 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 unambiguous. Like that's that's his that's his jam, <laughs> and he's really good at what he talks about, and he's really well informed on that. But I've been I've been shouted down personally by some people who are really you know staunch TTSA supporters who think that the occult is bunk, and it's not. You know, am I comfortable with that? No, it's 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 horrifying. And it's weird and it skeezes me out. But it's you know um, they're. I feel like the TTS thing, TTSA thing is built on uh, 
it's built upon an occultist foundation and a lot of people are not looking at that. I mean, take a look at what Hal Pudolf's done. Like, you know, and get back to me in a week, you know, it's just, it's, it's all, it's all right there in front of everybody, but they're so obsessed with, you know, meta materials and alien spacecraft that I don't think that they can see it. Now, again, they, again, they may be right. And, uh, I'll be happy if you they see are, that but... there's there's so much more to it than than they're letting on uh you know it, there, there's a much bigger picture and i don't think that of course we're never going to hear it from them right yeah no, that, that's a good point and it, it's uh it's and you know i've sort of come around to, like maybe it's maybe it's extraterrestrial space magicians. I mean, like that, honestly, like we're at the point where like that makes as much sense as anything. Um, but to, to deny that this other stuff has, has doesn't have a place in this is just, it's a little bit silly to me. And I, I, I really wish that, uh, I see a lot of infighting nowadays and it shouldn't be there because, you know, if, if the warrior and the pacifist are both sincere, they're going for the same goal, I guess this is where I'm coming at. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, before you head out, is there anything that uh, you're working on new in the future? Uh, I should. Uh, the, I have a new book coming out, uh, one of two volumes uh, about Bigfoot, uh, with uh, my good friend Timothy Renner. Uh, should be out. Volume one should be out by the end of the year. It's called uh, "Where the Footprints End." Uh, no firm date right now. But it's it's all locked down. We're just getting back edits from people right now, so it, it should be out should be out by the end of the year. We'll see if that happens or not. But uh, it's 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 imminent. I promise. <laughs> awesome. Looking forward to it. And thank you so much for joining us. That was fascinating information. Uh, we could have gotten to a lot more, so I'll have to have you back on. Oh, absolutely, Chris. Thanks so much. Thanks for your all your patience. Oh, no worries. You have a good one. All right. Take care. At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at american.edu slash gradschool. At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.